Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys again. And we are still going to be going through the book of Joshua. We're on track to, uh, this will be like the longest sermon series in history, right? Maybe other than the conclusion to Revelation. So, Joshua chapter 5 is, is an interesting passage. Uh, you know, we read through it and we say, okay, it's an interesting bit of history, but what does it mean to us? What is the purpose of Joshua 5 being in our Bible? And what are we supposed to learn from it today? How is it supposed to inform the church? I mean, it's, it's a bunch of talk about circumcision, Passover, this military leader, none of them pertain to us, right? I mean, we don't practice circumcision religiously. We don't practice the Passover, celebrate the Passover. We're not in some sort of holy religious war. So we don't have, you know, the spiritual commander. So what is this talking about? What is the point and how are we supposed to, to learn from it? I think that it really puts forward a key kind of foundational, fundamental question that we all have to answer, and we all think we have the answer for that question, but when you actually go to answer the question, my guess is you're going to find it difficult, or you may come up with just kind of a superficial answer that can have holes poked in it. And the question is, who are the people of God? How do you identify who the people of God are? I mean, we don't carry around like a certified membership card that we can pull out. We show up at a church and start attending a church. How does this church know that we're a believer that's coming into the fellowship? You meet somebody, they say, I'm a Christian. How do you identify them as a Christian? What makes someone, a person of God, a believer, and then how do you identify them? And that seems simple. Oh, they, they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus died for them. Right answers. How do you identify that in an individual? How do you sit down and say, yeah, this person is a believer, or no, this person is not a believer. And it's an important thing. I mean, we're, we're called to work with each other, to judge each other's lives, to live life together. And, and so we're evaluating what's going on in our lives. If you are in leadership in a church and somebody comes into the church and says, I want to be a member of the church, you have to evaluate, are they a believer? Do I say, yeah, you can be a member because you're a believer? Or do I say, you're not a believer, you can't be a member now, but let me tell you about how you can become a believer. You know, so we're called to identify in certain circumstances who's a believer and who's not a believer. Who is a person of God and who is not a person of God. And I think this is what Joshua 5 starts to kind of address because they had the same issue back then, dealing with, well, we're the people of God. You know? And they said, Israel is God's people. But what makes somebody an Israelite? 
Their idea was if you're born, you know, an Israelite, you're born from an Israelite mother, family, you're an Israelite. And bam, you're a person of God. And God is going to tell them, that's not the case. I don't care who your mother was. I don't care who your father was. That's not what makes you one of my people. So then what is it? So let me put forward a few things. And before we talk about what are the identifying features of a believer, I think we run into a few things that are not. So we'll look at first in Joshua 5, 1 through 7, of what are not the marks of a true believer. And I think the first two things that we're going to see is that belief and good works alone are not the marks of a true believer. And I didn't say that wrong. And trust me, it's not heresy. I'll get to the point and you can feel comfortable with it. But belief, belief in God, belief in Jesus, good work for Jesus, good works for God alone are not marks of a true believer. So follow along with me. Let's look at Joshua 5, start in verse 1. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At the time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibbeth Herloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. And Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land that Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So let's start out. Fear and respect of God by itself is not an identifying feature of a true believer. And, and I know your first thing is to say, well, wait a minute, the fear of the Lord is what? Is the beginning but not the end and not the whole enchilada, okay? It's the beginning. It's the first step that an individual needs to make is a recognition of who God is, what his position is, what his power is, and what he's offered. And you have a choice. You can accept that or you can reject it. And just because you reject it doesn't mean that you don't believe it or that you don't fear it. Look at, in our example here today, in Joshua 5, at the very beginning, the king of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that Yahweh 
had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. And their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And understand, this isn't like Israel pops up on the map for them, and they go, oh, this is scary. Israel and Yahweh, their God, has essentially been the boogeyman of this entire region for 40 years. Because 40 years ago, Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and we know the story, the plagues, the the Passover. They leave, they leave behind a wake of destruction in Egypt, firstborn dead, animals dead. I mean, the land is wrecked. They leave behind devastation. They go through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is destroyed. The most powerful army in the world at the time is wiped out. All of this destruction because of this God, Yahweh, who's God over these people, Israel. They knew about that 40 years ago. And we know that because Rahab told them that. We've already been through this before. Rahab told them, we know about you. We know what you did in Egypt. We know about what happened when you went through the Red Sea. We know how Pharaoh's army got killed. We even know the name of your God. Your God is Yahweh. Now, Rahab makes a choice. She's faced with the majesty of God, with the power of God, the sovereignty of God. And she makes a choice and says, I want to be a part of that, right? And so she chooses Yahweh over all the other gods that are out there. And she chooses to follow after Yahweh. Here, the king of the Amorites, the kings of all the Canaanites are faced with the very same thing that Rahab was. And they fear Yahweh and Israel, just like Rahab did. Their hearts melted, it said. There's no longer any spirit in them. Does it cause them then to worship God? to align with God, to follow after God? No. Just because they feared him doesn't mean that they accepted him. They believed in Yahweh. They feared Yahweh. But it didn't change anything in their hearts or in their life. Rahab and Ruth after her both recognize the power of Yahweh. They fear him. They choose to place their faith in him. Look at James chapter two with me. James two, read 14 through 16, 14 through 26, I'm sorry. What good is it, brothers? What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, and without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the message and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. So Paul's looking at the same thing and saying the same thing. And what's unspoken is, you saw what Rahab did. Rahab had faith that was then evidenced by her works. Everybody else was afraid and believed at the time, but didn't have their works evidencing their faith. So then you stop and you say, well, okay, so it's good works then. So somebody can say, I believe, but it's the good works then that, that is the sealing factor and the identifying feature. No, good works are not an identifying feature of the people of God. This is probably not a hard stretch. Think about your unbelieving friends. I would venture to guess that there's probably an unbeliever out there that you're acquainted with that's probably a better person than you <laughs> by the standards of just general morality. And I'm not even talking the standards of the world. I mean, just being a good, nice person. There's probably an unbeliever out there that's better than you at being angry and all of the other sins that we have. I'm not saying they're sin-free. Their being good does not identify them as a believer. Just as your sinning and not doing a good work doesn't identify you as an unbeliever. Good works are not an identifying feature of God's people. Joshua 5.2 Yahweh says to Joshua, make flint knives, circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Why? Because they hadn't been circumcised. So think about it. We're on the, the way to the promised land. Who enters the promised land? Those that outwardly had done everything they were supposed to religiously with the circumcision and following the Passover and sacrifice. We're, we're doing all of these steps or this unwashed mass of children that hadn't even been circumcised. Yeah, you were born, but you're not even circumcised. You're not even a real Israelite yet. But that's the group that God selects to enter into the promised land. Because the circumcised group doesn't evidence their faith. They get to the promised land, and they have the covenant they know the covenant to Abraham, that I'm gonna make you a great nation. Abraham, you're, you and your wife have no children, I'm gonna make you a huge nation. After that, I'm gonna give you a promised land, and after that, I am gonna bless the entire world through you. They know that. They know the position they're in, in slavery in Egypt, and then being brought out of Egypt 
by Yahweh, by his power, nothing they did. And here's millions of people now traveling through the wilderness. The first part, I'm gonna make your offspring numerous. I'm gonna make you a great nation. You're this nation of millions of people that came from a husband and wife. You've just conquered the most powerful nation in the world. You've destroyed their army. You get to the promised land, the next step in God's covenant, in his promise to you. Has he failed in any of his promises at this point? No, he's been faithful. He's kept all of his promises. You get to the promised land and you send spies in and the spies come back and 10 of them say, we can't do it. There's no way. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb say, it's not a problem. God promised this. We don't know how it's going to work out. Yeah, their armies are better than us. They're more advanced than us. They know more than us. But if God said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. The nation decides not to place their faith in God and his promises, and they don't enter the promised land. They don't share in the blessing that God had promised. This other group hasn't even been circumcised is brought into the land and given the land because they had faith. Not because of their circumcision, but rather it was their faith, their belief, their trust in God and his plan and his promise and his covenant that we can go and do this crazy scheme. We're gonna walk through water again and you, now you want us to get circumcised and then we're gonna have a party all in view of the city we're supposed to be attacking? Shouldn't we spend this time coming up with strategy? No, because they trusted in God. And if this is what God said to do, they were willing to follow it. And that's why they enter the promised land. This is why God considers them his people. Not because of their circumcision, not because of all the right things that they did, but because of their faith. Now, that doesn't mean that faith is alone because as soon as they cross over the river, they follow the instructions. I lost my notes. Circumcision was just an external sign of God's people. It, it wasn't meant to be your card that here, I'm one of God's people. It was to be this external sign of the work that God had done within their hearts. Deuteronomy 10, 16 says this. This is not like a, a later revelation. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But a Jew is not a Jew because of the external things that he does, but because of what's in his heart. In Romans Paul, working through this issue, Romans 2.29, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so then we see in 1 Corinthians, Paul expands this even further, this idea. And in 1 Corinthians 10, one through five, he says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all 
uh, drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why was he not pleased? Because they didn't trust. They didn't have faith in him. They were doing the outward stuff, the religious rituals. But when it came down, do you really trust the God that you are worshiping? They didn't. The second generation, this newer generation, that hadn't been circumcised, hadn't celebrated all the, the Passovers and all these other things, is now showing their faith and following through on that faith with the religious rituals that God had laid out for them. So that brings us to our second point. How do you identify a believer? Well, belief and good works are an identifying feature of a true believer. And you say, wait a minute. Isn't that what you just said that it wasn't? And I said, no. I said, faith and good works, belief and good works alone are not identifying features. Just saying you have a belief, just saying that you fear God, just saying you've done everything good in your life doesn't make you a believer. How do you identify a believer? Joshua 8. I'm sorry, uh, Joshua 5, verse 8. Joshua 5, verse 8. It says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And also the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means to roll. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So faith. So true believers have a trust in a providential God. They don't just trust in a weak God, a God in name, but they trust in a providential, sovereign, powerful God. Yeah. Joshua 1 laid this all out for him. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people in the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness, this Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God wasn't asking them to trust in an impotent God. They weren't asking, him, asking them to believe in a God that, couldn't protect them, that didn't have power, that didn't know what was going to happen. He said, here's my plan. Here's what I'm gonna do for you. I've kept every other promise in my life, or in your life to you. I've not failed you once yet. This is what I'm going to do for you. Are you gonna have faith in me and the power that I have? 
or are you going to have faith in something else? So he lays out this series of events for them. He brings them through the river to remind them of this slavery that they had escaped in Egypt. And he says as much. I'm bringing you through to remind you of going through the Red Sea. This is basically, it's a do-over, God says. Get your minds reset. Think about where you came from. Then he says, I want you to do this circumcision. It's a reminder of the covenant that God made. I'm not asking you to blindly place your faith in something God says. Place your faith in the promise I made to Abram back in Genesis 17. It's a reminder of their salvation. He gives the Passover. Remember, I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. This blood, this sacrifice provided salvation. And then we see the manna. He brings up the food. They get into the land. They start to eat the produce of the land. And the manna goes away. And it's this stark reminder that God provides for them. He provides sustenance for them, care for them. He's saying to them, remember 40 years ago, I started this plan. I brought you out of Egypt. And then I set you up as my own people to remind you of the covenant through circumcision. And I gave you the Passover to remember the sacrifice needed for salvation. And then for 40 years, I fed you. I fed you and cared for you and you never had to go without. And now you're in the land that I promised you and here's the abundance of produce. And so now I can take the manna away. It's not just a natural occurrence. It was me providing for you Israel. And I'm still providing to you through the produce in the land. It's not like they've reached the land and now they're just getting taken care of from the land. It's still God through the land. And so he reminds them, you're placing your faith in Yahweh, the creator of this world. It's not just some God that you don't know, that you don't know if he can keep his promises. So he asked them to have faith. True believers trust in a providential God. And then good works. True believers are obedience to the commands of that God. I mean, it just makes sense. If you say, I have faith, in God, this Yahweh that cared for Israel, that sends his son to die on a cross for me, this is who I have faith in, this is who I believe, then when you're faced with a circumstance where you have to make a choice and God's clearly given you an answer that I want you to do this, A, option A, if you choose option B, you're essentially saying through your actions, I don't have faith and the one that's given me this instruction. You see how faith and good works work together? Good works don't bring you salvation. They weren't people of God because they had been circumcised. You're not people of God because you show up every Sunday for church. You're not a people of God because you went through seminary, because you pastor a church. None of those things. Those things are only good when they're flowing out of your faith and your belief in God. And that's what's motivating and that's what's driving your good works. So good works are not bad. Good works are good. But they need to come from a love and a faith in God.
So then the last thing is that true believers are marked by who they follow. True believers are marked by who they follow. This will be 13 through 15 of Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? What an interesting question. Here shows up this obviously unnatural man. And he's got a sword. This is obviously somebody that's a threat. Somebody that has power and knows how to use it. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or against us? You know, are you allied, allied with us? Are you going to be with us? Or are you somebody that I, we have to worry about? And what a fascinating question or answer that he receives back. And he said, no. And, and understand that this is Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Then I'll prove it here in a second. But just go into it with that context in mind. Jesus says to them, no, I'm not with you and I'm not against you. This is totally not the answer that I would expect. I fully expect, like I go to God, God makes an appearance, and I, and I am like, God, are you for me or are you against me? You know, like in me going to do your work. I fully expect God to go, I'm with you, right? Isn't that what you expect? Instead, Jesus says, no, I'm not with you and I'm not against you. He says, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. And this makes really so much sense when you think about it. What's... Jesus and God with Israel? Was he, were they for Israel? No. No. That's a misunderstanding, a shifting of the relationship. Israel was with Yahweh. So this commander that shows up, this commander of the army of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is saying, no, I'm not with you, Joshua. Joshua, you're with me. I'm here to do my work and you guys are tagging along. Like, I, I'm not here to provide support for your battles and I'm going to battle and you're coming along and you're going to see what I am going to do. And he says, look, I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. <laughs> Essentially, you're ready for war now, Joshua. You know, it wasn't your army. It wasn't your weapons. You're waiting for me, and now I'm here, and we're going to take this land. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And this is why I think it's Jesus Christ. If this is an angel, what's an angel's response when anybody bows down and starts to worship an angel? Oh, don't, I don't deserve worship. We don't worship angels. Angels don't accept worship. The commander of the Lord's army says this instead. When Joshua bows down, starts to worship, he says, yeah, you did right, Joshua. Take off your sandals from your feet because the very ground that you're standing on is holy because I'm standing here. This is why it's Jesus Christ because who else 
by his very presence makes the area holy. Who else is deserving of worship? Who else will accept the worship? Who else is the commander of Yahweh's army other than Yahweh? This incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, Yahweh. And he says, you are going to follow me. And, and how often do we make that misunderstanding where we think that we're on a path, we have a plan, and Jesus is along for the ride to provide support to whatever our plans are? The, you know, people will still ask me this question. What are your plans for ministry? You know, are you going to go into full-time ministry? I'm like, man, I don't know. You know, I've spent, you know, the first portion of my life making all sorts of plans for God. Fantastic plans, right? Great plans. And a fraction of those things worked out, you know? And so I've gotten to the point where it's like, hey, you know what? <laughs> I've been trying to lead God and hope you'll follow along. And I pray to you and, and ask for you to fulfill my wishes for me. But rather, I need to step back and be following after. I mean, think about that. When we get upset at God, God if something turns out different than what we wanted and we get upset, God, why did you allow my wife, my husband to die? That's not fair. Why did you do that? In that, we're saying, God, we had a plan and it was better than whatever your plan was. You know, and why aren't you following my plan? But like the Lord of the army here says, I'm not with you or against you. I am out in front and you are with me. You're following after me. As Christians, we need to avoid that trap. Where do we place our faith? So often our faith is in the United States of America, you know? And you hear it, oh, the country's going down the drain. So what? Like, so what does that mean? That your comfort in life may not be as nice? What are, you think it's outside of God's plan? Do you think that God's surprised? If the United States fails next week, did God not know it was going to happen? Or, we place our faith in political parties, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, that they will bring us the salvation and good life that we need. No. The salvation, the good life, all lies with Yahweh. Not with the spies that went into the land or some sort of political party. We can place our faith in our pastors. Yeah, John Calvin, MacArthur, you know, how easy is it to fall into that trap of I'm a Christian and I'm right because I grew up in John MacArthur's church and I've got all my theology straight, you know, and, and it's all ordered and, and so I'm good. No, you don't place your faith in your, your pastors. We had the opportunity terrible experience of having to go through disciplining you know, our founding lead pastor out of the church. A lot of people said, 
what am I going to do? Like, how, like everything I've learned, I became a Christian because of him. Everything theology I've learned because of him. He baptized me. Is my Christian life like nothing at this point? Like, do I have to reevaluate everything? I said, no. No, because your faith is not in that individual, that person. Every person is going to fail you. God's the only one that keeps his promises. That's where your faith is. So your baptism is not baptism because of Jeff or baptism because of John MacArthur. Or, no, you are baptized into Christ. True believers follow after Christ. And then lastly, true believers worship. We see Joshua, when he recognizes the deity in front of him, he starts to provide worship. Yeah, he recognizes that this is God and this is me. And God is the one that's in control. God is the one that's laid out everything for us. And this is who we're worshiping. In Judges 21, you get near the end. In Judges 21, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in, in their own eyes. They exchanged the worship of Yahweh to be a worship of themselves. They exchanged the commands of Yahweh for the instructions of this world. They exchanged following the will of Yahweh to pursue their own base desires. And that is always a threat for us. The world is always going to press in. There's always going to be controversies. There's always going to be some sort of boogeyman laying around the corner that oh, we have to protect this in our nation because if we don't, then it's all going to go down the tube. No, it's not. No, it is not. God is still in control. The God that we worship is still the God of Joshua 5. Yahweh who brought Israel out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land to fulfill his covenantal promises to Abram. And we're experiencing the backside of those covenant promises of the blessing to the entire world through the offspring of Israel, through the offspring that Moses was given, Christ. And because of Christ and the blessing that he brought, our lives are able to be changed. We can have a belief in God, a faith in God. We can fear God, but we can still worship him and follow his will and follow his instructions. So, when you sit down, you have to answer the question of, how do I identify, is somebody a believer? You say, what have they professed? How have they acted? And who are they following? And what do they worship? You know, those things all go together. And we'll never be able to peer into somebody's heart. We're not God. So we only deal with external, but that's the external things that we've been given. And this is what God's looking at too. Joshua 5 shows it. This is what God desires. Our hearts, a transformed life. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your word and the instructions that we are given in it. And we are extremely grateful for your patience and for your forgiveness. And that as we are so, so slow at times, to understand how to, to live out your will and what your desires are. And even when we're faced with your instructions, we often 
chafe against them and push back and pursue our own desires. And I just pray that you would continue to work with us as we go through that process of sanctification, as we look towards the, the glory that you've promised, the eternal life, that we will no longer have to, to wrestle with sin. We know that our faith in those promises, our faith in you is not misplaced, that we can see how you've acted throughout history, how you've acted with your people, and that you've never forsaken them, that you've always been faithful to fulfill the promises you've made. We are grateful that you have brought us into your family. You've given us that opportunity and a way to get past our sin and rebellion against you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.